This passage of scripture we'll be looking at this morning is found in the sixth chapter of the book of Esther. As we continue our study through this historical account, Esther chapter 6, and this morning we look at verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then the wise men, his wise men, and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. As we've been studying the book of Esther, the overarching theme, as we have seen over and over again, has been the unseen hand of God. How God even though he's not named in this book, his presence is everywhere, orchestrating all the events according to his wise and perfect plan. When you think about how God works in that way, even people who don't believe in God seem to have a sense that there's something else behind the events of history. They have a hard time seeing that all of life is just a simple cause and effect relationship. 
They inevitably talk about things like luck, as though luck has some form of existence to it, that it's some kind of power. They inevitably talk about fate. They can't help but think that somehow there's some mystical force behind the events of history, behind the ordinary moments of our lives. One of the very simple places where you'll see it is if you're a sports fan and you watch a sporting event, say the NCAA tournament, the basketball tournament that wrapped up a week or so ago, you're watching the games, inevitably, you'll hear the commentator say something about momentum. They'll say, the momentum is shift. The momentum is with this team or with that team. In other words, it does seem like that when you're watching a game that something seems to take over and the team that has the momentum, all their plans, all their plays work and all their shots go in and all the foul calls are against the other team. And we talk about that, and, and, and I've, I've done that watching games where you feel like, this game's over. Momentum has clearly shifted to the other team, it's over. But then stop and think, what's momentum? Does momentum exist? Is it some kind of mystical force that takes over one team and then suddenly departs and takes over the other team and kind of plays with the whole event? No but they can't help but think there must be something involved. It's not just cause and effect. That's not how life works. Well, as humanly speaking, you look at the book of Esther, the story of Esther, as we've been studying through it, when you come to chapter six, the momentum shifts, humanly speaking. Everything turns and goes in an opposite direction to the way things have been developing to this point in the story. The beginning of chapter six is the turning point. The beginning of chapter 6 is the pivotal moment in the story where everything up until this point seemed to be working against Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews to the point where on the trajectory is hard humanly speaking to, under, to see any scenario where they weren't utterly destroyed and wiped off the face of the planet. But yet from this point on, from the beginning of chapter 6 on, Momentum shifts. The story takes a sudden turn. And from that point on, all the events that play out are in the favor of Mordecai and Esther and the Jewish people to the point where ultimately they are delivered from destruction. What really struck me as I studied this passage is how ordinary the events are that are recorded here. Ordinary stuff that happens to people all the time. No heroic acts. You tend to think of Esther as the hero of this story, heroine of this story, but she's not even in this chapter. She doesn't appear here. No miraculous interventions. When you read a story from the Bible, you expect God to intervene and do some miracle to make things change, to make things happen. No, what we see portrayed here, as we've seen through the entire story, is providence at work. We see God working behind the scene, orchestrating even the details of every event to accomplish his perfect will. But he kind of shows his hand here in chapter 6, so to speak. We, said, we quoted Einstein a few weeks ago saying that coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. 
Well, if that's the case, then he kind of he blows his cover here because he's being so obvious in the way that he orchestrates these ordinary events in the lives of the people that we're studying. Well, let's quickly review what we've seen so far. Haman, the villain of the story, has, he's, he's king of Persia's right-hand man, the number two in power over the entire empire, which was the most powerful empire on earth at the time. He, being an Agagite, a descendant of the Amalekites, his whole family, his whole, uh, his whole family line has been opposed to the Jews, has been an enemy of the Jews, and he particularly hated the Jews, but he focused his hatred of the Jews and his anger towards the Jews on one individual, Mordecai particularly. He hated Mordecai because not only was Mordecai a Jew, not only was Mordecai an official in the king's government, but Mordecai consistently, repeatedly, stubbornly refused to show any honor or respect to Haman. And so Haman decides to go after both Mordecai and the Jews, and he manipulates the king, bribes the king, to convince him to pass an irrevocable decree to eliminate the Jews from the face of the earth entirely, to destroy them completely. Well, Queen Esther, who unknown to Haman and unknown to the king at this point, is a Jewess, she was of the Jewish people, and was the adoptive daughter of Mordecai. She is challenged by Mordecai to go to the king to make a plea for the people of God, her people. And to do so, she had to break an irrevocable law which was punishable by death, so she risked her life to do so. Well, the king allows her into his presence, and she, instead of making her request right away, and remember how we wrestled with why she did that last week, she doesn't right away make a request, but she invites the king and Haman to a private banquet, not just once, but twice. Meanwhile, as we saw at the end of last week's passage, Haman has decided he can't take it anymore. And so he, encouraged by his wife and his friends, makes the decision to go to the king in the morning. Now, this is between the two banquets. You have a banquet on one day with the queen and the king, and then before the second day, the evening before the second day, he decides that he's going to ask the king to have Mordecai executed right away. And he's so confident, and why wouldn't he be? I mean, all the Jews are going to be killed soon, so why, what would he care to, to get rid of this one that particularly is causing problems for Haman? And so he's so confident that the king would grant his request to execute Mordecai immediately that he begins to build the gallows, or as we said, it could be just a stake where um, where Mordecai would be executed the next morning. That was his plan, and he was so confident it would come to pass that he actually puts up the gallows overnight. Well, here's where we hit the pivotal moment. Things look very, very dark for Mordecai, for Esther, and for the Jews as a whole. But here's where the trajectory of the whole story changes. From a path towards total destruction and the elimination of God's people once and for all to total deliverance. And what changes? What's the pivot point? What's the turning point of the story? Insomnia. Simple, common insomnia. The king had a sleepless night. We don't know why, but just one of those nights. You've had hundreds of them. I've had hundreds of them. Staring at the ceiling, lying on his bed, he can't go to sleep. And so, he calls for his servants. 
Come, read me something boring to put me to sleep. I got a good idea. Why don't you bring me the Chronicles of the Court, which is just basically a kind of a, a bland historical account of all the, the, the achievements of his kingdom, the, the decrees that he's made, the laws that he's passed, the military victories he's won, the appointments that he's made. It's just a chronicle of his reign. And so they come and they begin to read, and he might have been even uh, starting to nod off, we don't know. But then the servants come to the passage where it talks about Mordecai saving his life. Remember that from back in chapter 2? But, you know, it's just kind of thrown in there as an aside in chapter 2. But look how important this event was. That Mordecai heard, again, happenstance from a human perspective, he heard about a plot that was being uh, put together by two of the king's servants who guarded his threshold, who guarded his door to his palace, to kill him, to assassinate him. And so when Mordecai hears about it, he goes and tells Esther, his adoptive daughter, and then she tells the king. And so they arrest them, try them, and execute the two assassins. But we mentioned at the time, and we said it might be important, that he, Mordecai was slighted here. He wasn't, there was no honor given to him, no position given to him, no money given to him. It was not rewarded at all for such a, a, a great act on behalf of the king. Well, they read that account, and the king says, what did we ever do for Mordecai? I don't remember doing anything for Mordecai after what he did for me. And the servants say, we didn't do anything. And you can understand why the king would be alarmed. I mean, the kings lived on the loyalty of their subjects. It put his life at risk to not reward somebody who put their life in danger in order to expose an assassination attempt. It was important to his reign that he give Mordecai not just a reward, but a big reward, and he had nothing had been given to him. And so, at that point, he says, I, what, what, what should I do? And we've already learned about this king. He doesn't do anything without consulting with his advisors. The guy couldn't make a decision to save his life. And so, he says, I, I need my advisors to tell me what to do for Mordecai. And he says, which of my officials are around? Well, it's the wee hours of the morning. Of course, his officials aren't just lurking around in the court or outside the court. And, and, uh, but it just so happens that Haman, who was so anxious to get that gallows built, I'm sure he was so anxious to get into the king's presence to make his request so that he could execute Mordecai and get that over with so he could go to the banquet with the queen and enjoy his meal. He's there in the wee hours of the morning seeking an audience, and the servants tell him that, that hey, you know what, Haman just walked up. He said, well, bring him in. I need his advice. I just want to point out before I go on with the story, this is just normal, everyday stuff. No miracles here. No divine interventions. Just coincidences. Coincidences that are so profound, as we know, you know, those of you who have read the end of the story, it's amazing that they get lined up in succession like this. You know, the pivot of not just this story, but the pivot of the history of the Jewish people rests on a sleepless night by a king. It's the unseen hand of God directing events. When we read scripture, necessarily scripture focuses, and we tend to focus, on the big miraculous events, the big divine interventions where God does something so spectacular that leads to our salvation. 
The big events of, of redemptive history, like creation, or like the worldwide flood, or the ten plagues upon Pharaoh in Egypt, or the parting of the Red Sea, or all the miracles around the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, or the miracles of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, or the miracles of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament, or ultimately the resurrection of Christ. All these huge interventions, miraculous interventions of God. But you do realize that in thousands of years of human history, 90, more than 99% of the events of history have been non-miraculous. More than 99%. We tend to look for miracles, but God's modus operandi, his, his normal way of operating is through ordinary events and not through miracles. Your life, my life, is highly likely to be among that less, you know, that more than 99% of human history that doesn't involve divine intervention. History is about people sowing seed and watering seed and reaping the harvest, cooking and eating, taking out the garbage, playing with children, getting the flu. Ordinary life. But God is orchestrating all of it according to his perfect plan and for his great purposes. Your life is not insignificant. You see, we have, and especially in a success-driven culture like we live, there's so much pressure on us to make a mark. And I, I, I'm living in a university community where it's all about making your mark, about getting recognized by your peers, about getting a title next to your name that people respect, about making a difference, being significant. But every Christian's life is significant. All the details the mundane details of your everyday life are part of God's overall plan to accomplish his purposes and redemption. God isn't looking for heroes. We have one hero and he was enough for all of us. He's looking for those who are willing to live for our hero throughout all of the details of life even the ones that we consider most insignificant. Well, that leads to the next remarkable uh, happening in this story, which is this funny misunderstanding that takes place between Haman and the king. As we said, you know, he, he brings Haman in. I'm sure Haman felt honored, felt privileged to be come in and give some more advice to the king. Why wouldn't he? And so the king hits him with his question. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And here's where the comedy kicks in. What happens next is, is a staple of great comedy throughout all history. A situation where you have two people having a conversation and they make wrong assumptions about what they're talking about or who they're talking about. And because of their wrong assumptions, they miscommunicate, they misunderstand, and it leads to a whole series of, of funny events because they misunderstood each other and made the wrong assumptions. And that's what happens here. Classic example, one of my favorites, Abbott and Costello. Who's on first? Talking about those dreaded Yankees, the Yankee players with the funny names. First baseman's name was who, the second baseman's name was what, and the third baseman's name was I don't know. 
And so they're talking about these funny names and Abbott says, you know, after he says the name, Abbott says, uh, who's on first? And Costello, actually, I think I have it backwards. I'm checking my notes here to make sure I, I get Abbott and Costello mixed up. You, you purists are going to correct me on this after the sermon if I don't check. So, so Abbott's the one who says who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know who's on third. Costello's the one who says who's on first, and Abbott says yes. <laughs> and it goes from there. You know how it goes, and it's hilarious. If you've never heard it, I mean, I know this is way before your time, most of you probably way before your time, before my time, what am I talking about? Uh, you know, <laughs> look it up, look it up, it's on YouTube, look it up, it's hilarious. So, you know, this is what's going on between Haman and the king. In his pride, he says to himself, and I want to point out, you know how many times I've said to you, this book does not tell us about internal thoughts and motivations? This is, this is the first time that internal thought is given. Haman says to himself, it's so obvious by his answer, I don't think the writer had to guess what he was thinking to himself. He says, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, you can say, what an arrogant jerk, which he was. But he has good reason to come to that wrong assumption, doesn't he? I mean, he's been made number two. He's been promoted to number two in the most powerful kingdom on earth. And, again, let me put you in context here. The queen, for some unknown reason, has invited him to a special banquet, only him, with the king, the king, the queen, and Haman. And she's invited him to another one later that day. So it's not a... a you know, an unreasonable assumption he makes here. Well, I'm the one who he wants to honor. Maybe at this banquet, he wants to give me some great honor. So what would he want? And this is where, you know, to help understand his answer, remember, this is probably one of the wealthiest persons on earth because he gave 10,000 talents of silver as a bribe. That's a huge amount of money back in that day as a bribe to have the Jews exterminated. So he's an extremely wealthy man. He's the second most powerful person on earth, second only to the king of Persia. He has everything in terms of this earth at his disposal. What more could be done to honor him? And he comes up with, he wants to be given the glory of the king himself. He wants to wear the king's robes, he wants to ride the king's horse, and he wants to be paraded around the city saying, this is the kind of person that the king respects and admires. He wants it said about him. He reveals his heart. That's what pride does. If you live for pride, if you live for self-glory, that's where it leads. You know the sad thing about it is? That wouldn't have made him happy either if he had been given that. Because pride cannot be satisfied. Pride destroys. Because pride is about jealousy. Pride is about having anything that anybody else has that you want. And that was Haman. Well, I would have loved to have been a fly on a wall and see Haman's face when the king says to him, Haman, hurry. You go do that. I like your idea. You go do that. Go to Mordecai the Jew and do it to him. And leave out nothing that you've mentioned. Can you imagine the crestfallen face of Haman? when he realized his assumption was not only wrong, but horrifically wrong. 
He even calls him Mordecai, the king calls him Mordecai the Jew. Now again, the king's not aware of all this stuff. He calls him Mordecai the Jew. Just, I think God had that in part of his little, little detail in his plan, just to rub a little salt in the wound of Haman's wounded ego. Which leads to this final scene of the story with this ironic honor. Haman goes to the, to the palace in order to execute and humiliate Mordecai. And then a few minutes later, he leaves with a king's robes and a king's horse in order to honor Mordecai and parade him around the city. What Haman wanted most in the world was not only given to his rival, the person he hated the most, but he had to deliver it himself. He had to sing his praises himself as he paraded him around the city. One commentator said, I thought the words were very graphic, says, these words of praise that he shouted around the city must have been like gravel in Haman's mouth. And I just love that image. I don't know if you ever had gravel in your mouth, but um, it just gives a, a real vivid sense of what that would have felt like to do what he had to do to, to obey the king. Well, after the whole ordeal is over, after Haman survives it, he covers his head in grief and humiliation, and he goes home to his wife and his friends to get comfort and consolation, just like the night before. He wants to tell me how great I am, because, man, this was so hard on my ego. I need you to tell me how great I am. And, and when they heard all of the, the sequence of events, like I said, you know, God's hand is so obvious in what he's doing here. When he, they heard the whole story, they say to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Ouch, that's cold comfort. And what's striking there is that these are the same people that night before who suggested that he execute Mordecai in the fashion he was going to do it. But what it says is that even an unbeliever, even a pagan, can recognize that the hand of God is doing something. And, you know, the Persians had heard the history of the Jews. They had heard about what God had done with the ten plagues in Egypt, the way he provided for his people in the wilderness, now, I don't know how much of that they believed, how much of that they thought was myth or legend, how, how he led them into the promised land. You know, they would have heard all these stories, most of them anyway. And so they're looking at what's going on in Haman's life and saying, uh-oh, you're on the wrong side of history here, buddy. God is doing something. I don't know. We don't know this God. We don't know how powerful he is, but you're on the wrong side of him and look out. What's so funny about this chapter, it's funny in kind of a sad way, is the reversals. How, like we said, there's a certain trajectory, then all of a sudden things can change and go dramatically in the wrong direction. And that's what's happening in Haman's life here. But that's what God's about. God is in the business of reversals. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert here if you've never read the book of Esther, if you haven't read it as part of our studies. I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 9 and just kind of give the end of the story here. Um, chapter 9, the first couple of verses, listen to what it says there. This is describing when the deliverance was brought to fulfillment. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews had hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The reverse occurred. That's kind of a theme of scripture. The reverse occurred. God is in the business 
of reversal. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden and were cast out into the outer darkness, God's plan has been about reversing, reversing the fall, reconciling with his people, and restoring the paradise of the new heavens and the new earth. His whole plan has been about that. Turning darkness into light, turning wickedness into righteousness, turning unbelief into faith, turning rebellion into submission, turning death into life. The whole plan of redemption is about reversal. When God finally sent his son into the world, his son came to establish a kingdom. But what's remarkable about that kingdom is it's an upside-down kingdom. Everything's inverse. Everything's in reverse from the kingdoms of this world. Everything's upside-down. In the kingdom that Christ came to establish, the first will be last and the last will be first. The wise will be foolish and the foolish will be wise. The blessed are the poor and those who mourn and those who are meek and those who are persecuted. It's all upside down from the perspective of this world. Because Christ came to bring about the greatest reversal of all history. I've always been intrigued by the word crux. We use that in the English language. The word crux, I thought of it in relation to this passage because the word crux, one of its meanings is the idea of a turning point, a pivotal moment or a pivotal event that determines everything that happens after that. But the word crux, if you know Latin, is the word for cross. And the cross is that pivotal moment of history, that turning point where up until that point, everything looked bleak for a sinner like you and me. But at the cross, everything was turned. The fall of man into sin and death and darkness was turned to light and life and truth. The greatest, the cross, the greatest place of humiliation and condemnation that the world knew at the time. In a moment, in that pivotal moment, became the greatest display of the glory of God the earth has ever seen. Because there is where you see the fullness of God's justice as Christ endured the pains of hell on the cross in our place. So God's justice is displayed vividly on the cross. And yet, it was the greatest display of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. The cross was the turning point that will eventually lead to the restoration of all things to perfection when Christ returns and establishes the new kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth. This is Palm Sunday. It's the day we remember when our Savior entered Jerusalem in order to offer up his life on the cross. But do you remember how he entered? Riding on a horse, so to speak, a little horse, a donkey. And all the people shouted Hosanna. They shouted his praises as he was paraded through the streets of the city of Jerusalem. But there was another reversal to come because only a few days later, people were crying out for his crucifixion. Crucify him, crucify him. But then there was another reversal to come, the great reversal to come when he was raised from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. He conquered death and Satan and sin 
once and for all. God's plan is all about reversal. And your life is an important part of it. What if, I told you a few weeks, a few weeks ago, because we believe in God's providence, we can't live by that question, what if, what if, what if? Because we recognize that God is working in all the circumstances of our lives. But let me just disobey my own rule for a second and say, what if Esther had made her request at the first banquet? I think if Esther had made her request at the first banquet when we expected her to, the king would have said no. And we'll see why. He, he later is given a different mindset very quickly. But he would have said no if she had asked the request at the first banquet. What if the king had slept soundly that night? What if he just had a good night's sleep that night? How would history have changed? What if he had requested a different book to be read? Or what if the servants had read a different passage in the book than what they read? And what if Haman hadn't walked into the outer court at just the right moment to involve himself in this whole scene? The English scholar of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, once wrote this. He said, there's no such thing as chance or luck or accident in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God. Therefore, let us seek to have an abiding sense of God's hand in all that befalls us if we profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. Let us strive to realize that, a father's, that the Father's hand is measuring out our daily portion and that our steps are ordered by him. Or as the book of Proverbs says in chapter 16, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That is foundational to your philosophy of life. That's foundational to your worldview. This world doesn't respect philosophy anymore. I don't know, I, I don't know anything about coursework on campus, but I, I'm guessing like most universities, the philosophy department is not a very big department. Not considered a very important department. I mean, compare it to the engineering department or the sciences and those departments. We don't respect philosophy these days, not like in the ancient times. But we as Christians know how important our philosophy is, how important our worldview is, because it determines how we think, it determines how we act, it determines the choices we make in life. And the providence of God is one of the most important planks in your philosophy of life and your worldview. Believing that, as the Westminster Confession says, his holy, wise, and powerful, that, that providence is his holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. You see, we are on the right side of history. We are the ones who are on the right side of history because history is the plan of redemption and it's not complete yet. And God will complete it according to his plan. We need to be aware of God's unseen hand directing our lives every day working in us, in us, and through us to bring about his redemptive purposes. Every day in every one of his people's lives, your life is significant in his plan. He has a purpose, even in the most mundane activities of your life. We are not likely to be a part of the less than 1% of God's plan that involves spectacular miracles, but none of the events of our lives are trivial or unimportant. God is calling us to faithfulness, even mundane faithfulness, 
for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us a part of your plan. You plan all things, but we're so glad to be on the right side of your plan of redemption, to be recipients of your grace. We didn't choose, but we, we were led by your Spirit to be where we are. Your Holy Spirit has given us a new mind and a new heart that we might see and understand the truth of the gospel, that we might see the glory of Christ crucified and risen from the dead, that we might be a part of your plan to restore all things. Thank you for giving us whatever role we have received. Lord, please deepen our commitment to walking in your ways and sharing the truth that changes lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.